You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and I'm here with Andrew Kingsley, and uh, we are back from a one-week hiatus, which was my fault. I lost my voice. And, um, you know, it's bad when you don't have a face for radio or a voice for radio. Yeah, then you're in bad shape. It's terrible. I didn't get a face, but I've got something of a voice back. So we're back. Uh, We needed the extra time, though, to think about Romans because it's been a real challenge. It's a very deep, complex book, uh, but also one that has been very fulfilling to study yeah. And to think about our hope in Jesus Christ, our justification by faith. And so uh, we are ready today for three more chapters of Romans. Our our attempt is going to be to cover chapters six through eight. And we're gonna Andrew is gonna take the reading, take the lead on the reading today because of his great skill oh, yeah. in <laughs> expositing portions of scripture yeah. that defy organization. Yeah. Good luck to you, sir. Yeah. Um, I'm sure everybody in that Wednesday night class on Romans would agree with that statement right now. I, I think everybody in the whole world <laughs> oh, yeah. agrees with that statement. Sure. Well, let's uh, let's try and get through these three chapters. So our the section of the book that we're in right now, as we have defined earlier, is by faith. So we took that uh, thesis statement of the book, the righteous shall live by faith. We talked about the righteous. Now we're talking about by faith. And then eventually we'll get to shall live. So right now we're talking about by faith. What do we have in faith? What has faith done for us? We talked about justification in the previous chapters. And now in these three chapters we're talking about being set free by faith or freed by faith. And what we're going to see here in chapter 6 we have been freed from sin. In chapter 7 we have been freed from the old law. And in chapter 8 we have been freed from death itself. Some very interesting stuff here. So let's start with chapter 6. The key verse here is verse 7 for the whole chapter, being free from sin. Here's what it says. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So pretty pretty simple thought there. Uh, The one who has died has been set free from sin. But the one who has died, how? Who has died to what? And the first point under chapter 6 is uh, we have a new life. The key verses here are verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we have a new kind of life. There's a newness of life. And that gives us a new master. And the key verse here is verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And also here in verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that if you if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So chapter 6, in a nutshell, you've been set free from sin to a newness of life. You died to self. And this is really, I guess, the one of the quintessential passages on baptism, if I use that word right. 
Mm-hmm. I uh, think you did. Yeah, I hope so. Um, it's a really it's a great passage on baptism, in the beginning of chapter six, and we'll get into it more in the in the think section. Um, so we've been given this newness of life, and that gives us a new master, a new goal in life, and that is to be serving righteousness, to be serving God. And Paul even says to be a slave to righteousness. And so, chapter seven, we have this idea that we are freed from the law. And I think we're going to decide in the next section that we're talking about the old law of Moses here. Um, and verse 6 is our key verse here. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now there's some a lot of stuff to chew on just in that verse, but we'll chew on that in our second section. So we're dead to the law, first of all, and we just read that verse. But also we find that we are dead in the law. And Paul has this very long, kind of looks like an inner monologue, really, starting in verse 13 and going to the end of the chapter. But you can pretty much sum up what's going on uh, in these verses, starting in verse 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's talking there about, I want to do what's right, but I I don't do what's right. When I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. And there's a lot more on that in the verses leading up to it. Uh, And he closes that out by saying this in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And that leads us into chapter 8 with this idea of the flesh and the spirit. But we're going to say that chapter 8 um, follows this outline of being freed from death. Now, we're freed from the death of the flesh, which Paul just got through explaining. And we're freed into a life of the spirit. Look in verse 2 of chapter 8. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit has set us free from sin and death. And he goes on to talk a little bit about the old law here, but our key verse is going to be in verse 6 and then also in verses 10 and 11. Verse 6 says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Down in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So obviously the theme here is life in the spirit. You've been set free from death, the death of the flesh, to have life in the spirit. The spirit gives you life. Um, Also, we have life in hope. And really, it's the hope that the Spirit has given us. Uh, If we start reading in verse 18, uh, we find that Paul is talking about the the futility, I guess, of the creation. Or not the futility. Let's, Let's just read it so I don't mess this up. So you start talking about world renowned skills of outlining and now. You're just trying to make us all believe that you're human. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. I mean, you're humanize. You're doing this on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, that's what. Humanize yourself to, which is another great part of your teaching ability. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that. Because by doing that, we, um, you know, peasants can more relatable. Yeah, we we relate to you. There's a rapport built up. Yeah. You're going to be a cult leader. You know, if you keep going at this pace. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's uh, let's just see if we can get through a chapter eight to start with. Uh, so let's we're in this idea of we're being uh, free from death by the Spirit. We have life in the Spirit. Now we also have life in hope. Well, what hope? He mentions a hope in verse twenty four. In this hope we were saved. So we have salvation in whatever hope he's talking about here. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And what he's talking about here, you can read in verse 18 and following. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about the glory that we will have in our resurrection, really, in the resurrection body, the glory that is to come. Because he's already mentioned that. You know, in verse 11, he'll mention it again soon. Right. Um, but I, I, I'm looking through this and noticing how the death of the soul or the death of the spirit is laced together with the death of the body. And he's been doing that since chapter 5, verse 12. Yeah. And then the life of the spirit is, or the life in the spirit, however you want to term it, is kind of connected to eternal life yeah. in the resurrected body. So it's like you start eternal life while you're still in your decaying body before the resurrection, and it's that same life that is that culminates with the resurrection of the body. Uh, Jesus spoke that way too. You know, he's, He didn't say eternal life uh, begins upon the resurrection, but it begins upon your conversion. And it mm-hmm. blossoms, you know, at the resurrection. You can see that kind yeah. of language. It's kind of an already and at the same time not yet um, way of looking at eternal life. You already have it, but you're not yet fully realizing it. Yeah. And that that kind of thing is, it would be hard for me to write that out or explain it. Mm-hmm. And Paul is just skillfully using that mentality as he writes here. And yeah, I've just been noticing that in chapter 8. As you've been going through these, yeah, I like how you brought up the point that this started all the way back in chapter five. Right, you know, he's talking about how sin brought death, physical death. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but here some of the things you said sound like spiritual death, and some of the things that you've read sound like physical death, mm-hmm. and some of the things that you've read sound like spiritual life. And some of the mm-hmm. things that you're reading are obviously referring to resurrection life. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt, but it's just something that has come out in the reading that's been interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting thoughts here on the difference in, I guess, physical life and and the resurrection life, which I guess would kind of fall under physical, but not really. Um, yeah. And then also the spiritual life that we have. Um, and then we want to close just with what Paul closes with. So he talks about this hope that we have. And then he says this, What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he gives us this hope that we have, the life in the Spirit, the life in hope. And then he says, what's going to take that hope away from you? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. There's a lot of difficulties in this, so let's take a break, save our time for section two, and we'll come back and, and dig deeper into this text. back and uh, we're here for our favorite part of the podcast where we think about things that we want to think about. This is uh, when we get to do what we want to do. Right. Well, sometimes I don't know why we're wanting to tread into some of these deep waters because, you know, if anybody listened, they might take <laughs> issue with some conclusions we draw. Yeah. Not that... I, it's. I don't think that we're doing anything unorthodox, or I'm not claiming to, or certainly not trying to, but some of the questions we raise, and this includes today, just you, you just can't give it a pat answer. There, you know, the, We often come up saying, you know, God did not fully reveal the answers, and this is what we think it might be, but we can't be 100% sure. And I think that right there applies to the first problem that, that I want to address from chapter 7, and that's this man. Paul is speaking in the first in the first person, but it's a it's a man that is divided up. He wants to do the law, but his flesh is doing something different. Yeah. And so uh, there's there's basically three questions about this, and I'm talking about seven thirteen to the end of the chapter. Here's the first question: Why did Paul bring up this man? I mean, where where does this fit into the text? And as I look at it, here's what I see, Andrew. He's been talking about the fact that the law cannot do what Christ can do. Right. In other words, the law cannot save because Leviticus 18.5 says that the one who lives by these rules, these these laws... When you do them, you will live by them. That's what I meant to say. Leviticus yeah. 18.5. Whoever does them will live. And uh, Paul quotes that passage. Finally, he gets around to quoting it in Romans 10, verse 5. And he quotes it in Galatians mm-hmm. as well. So that's the main point of chapter 7, I think. And you called it uh, freedom from the law. Yeah, and I think 8, verse 3. I mean, it says that exact phrase you just said. For God yes. has done what the law weakened by the flesh, 
could not do. Right. The reason why... So that's the next part. So an objector comes up to Paul and he says, you are charging the law with guilt. And Paul's answer is, no, the law is holy and good. He says in chapter 7. Right, um, verse 12, right before Verse 12. The, mm-hmm. It is holy, righteous, and good, but we are bad, and through sin, the law becomes a stumbling block for us or, a, or an obstacle to our eternal security. So we can't be saved by the law because of our sinfulness, not because of any flaw in the law. Yeah. All right? So that's the context, and he brings up this man to show that he does believe that the law is good, and there is a part of him that believes that the law is good, but he doesn't follow it, and that is why he is lost without Christ. Yeah. That's where this man who's struggling the way that he's struggling, that's where he fits into the context of Romans chapter 7, and the whole book, for that matter. Now, second question. What is this man's problem? And the problem is he's divided. He's divided. And that division is shown in four couplets. Look at this. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. Okay, so he's saying there the law is good. But then on the other hand, I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Okay, the next couplet, chapter uh, verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Okay, so there again he's saying the law is good. But then in verse 17 he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's doing doing bad. The next couplet, 22 and 23. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Okay, the law is good again. But, mm-hmm. verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then the final couplet is the last part of verse 25. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. So the law is good. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So that's the man's problem. The flesh is sinning. The uh, the mind or the inner person, the will of him is wanting to do good or yeah. follow the law. So you've yeah. got this. That's the man's problem. Mm-hmm. He's divided between his flesh and sometimes it's called his mind. Sometimes it's called his inner person, inner yeah. man. I think I would even call it the spirit here. Yeah, the I man's think, spirit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the man's spirit, yeah, right? The Not the spirit. capital S spirit. And here's yeah, here's where I get some of that from. Uh, Galatians chapter five, Paul has a very similar uh, passage to this one in Romans. He says this in verse sixteen in Galatians five. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I think we all recognize there's a difference between spiritual things and fleshly things you know and i think we can all relate very well to paul with you know my body wants to do this sinful thing but the spiritual side of me tells me i don't need to do that um and paul kind of explains that verse 17 in other words everybody knows what inward struggle is yeah everybody's had inward struggle yeah and that's what he's what he's um talking about here yeah verse 17 uh continuing on in galatians 5 the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's the exact same language that he uses in Romans. 
True, yeah. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The exact same idea that we're looking at in Romans. He just said we're released from the law. We have died to the law to serve by the new way of the Spirit, not by the way of the written code, the old way. Yeah. Paul here is saying the same thing. You're not under the law. You're being led by the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident, and he gives that big long list of all these fleshly, physical sins. Um, then he says, I warned you as I warned those before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we get to verse 22. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to the Spirit, or those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's another phrase that comes straight from Romans chapter 6, crucified yeah. uh, the old self, crucified the flesh, is actually right from Romans. Mm-hmm. Uh, crucifying the body um, along with its passions and desires, the passions and desires of the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So I think the big contrast here is obviously between there are desires, and I think when Paul says the law of my mind, it looks like the law of his mind is striving to serve God. You know, yes. is trying to live by the Spirit. Yes. So he's wanting yeah. to live by the Spirit. He's attempting to, but every time he tries to do good, he sees that evil lies close at hand. And I think there's some good stuff in there for application too. Um, but you know, even when you're doing something good, there's definitely temptation for you to somehow. You know, mess that up. Even when yeah. you're giving, you know, mm-hmm. there's a temptation there to, to, to want people to see you give and to think, oh man, look how great they are. You know, they're giving. Look, you know, maybe there's a temptation to kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe not fold that check up or to, uh, or wave, to wave it around, or if you're doing cash, just kind of fan it. Yeah. <laughs> Before dropping Maybe it, to like, count like the it little out. kids do, yeah, you know where they have a handful of quarters and they drop them one at a time into the plate. Maybe you just take out. Maybe I don't know. I'm just going to give an example. Maybe you're giving like seventy five bucks, fifty bucks, something like that. You get it all out and change. Yeah, right. <laughs> just so you can drop it in I, there. I need you go to the bank. Yeah, I guess Saturday because you can on Sunday and you ask I need for that fifty dollars in quarters. Yeah. <laughs> for the contribution this week, but yeah, I think. But you make a good point. Even when we're doing good, I mean, every you could say every hour we sin. If if it's just in not holding loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. Yeah, right. You know, how many hours a day are we not doing that? Well, when we're not doing that, we are we're failing yeah. to follow the law because that's the greatest command. Yeah. How many hours a day do we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves? You know, th- just putting aside all the besetting sins and habitual sins that we're trying to overcome and other things. Now, there's a third question here. This is actually okay. the hardest part. This might be the question I was about to ask. Okay. Who is this man? Okay. So the question, well, the close. big debate can be boiled down to this. Is this Paul before he became a Christian? living as a Pharisee under the law, trying to keep the law perfectly, yeah. or is this Paul as a Christian? Yeah, so what law are we talking about? Well, yeah, that's almost like a fourth question. That's, that's the question I was thinking of. Okay, 
Uh, is it the law of I, Moses or the law of? Well, you finish your thing on no, Paul. No, let's and then do we'll that. Let's it. do that because our listeners may be confused by that. I'm a little confused by it. I'm not sure that I can really. Draw okay, this. when you go to verses six and seven of this chapter, it really seems like it's the law of Moses because he even brings up in verse seven the tenth commandment: "Thou shalt not covet." Yeah, as an example of the law. That you know, he says we're released from the law. The first thing my mind goes to is the law, because in verse 12 he says, the law is holy and the commandment is good and righteous and good. Or holy and righteous and good. So, I mean... But it it seems to change, though. As right. he continues to talk, it seems like he's talking about the law of righteousness in general. Not yeah. necessarily the you know, regulations on sacrifices and the the feasts that we are to observe and the Levitical priesthood and the, the instructions yeah. on building the temple part of the law, but the moral part of the law yeah. in general, the law of righteousness that describes God's character, that's what yeah. it begins to sound like. And even thou shalt not covet is a part of that law. Uh, he doesn't bring up an example that wouldn't fit in God's law in general. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you this real quick. And this is, I mean, this has just come to my mind for the first time. So I don't have an answer. These are always interesting. Yeah, I'm just just asking here. Yeah. So we've got, I think we would, I think everybody would agree here, chapter 7 is definitely about being released from the old law. Right? Yes. That's the theme. But also, but it, it could be that and all law in general, like the law of righteousness. Because, in other words, you can't be perfect. Yeah. But you can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. My question is, how does and I that's my thought too right now, but remember it's a mixed some audience. Reason. It's a mix as as we introduce the book. So this would apply one, to both, yeah. He's not just writing to Jews. What does the law mean to the Gentiles? And he told them in you've got the moral two, yeah. law written on your hearts, chapter two, verse fourteen and fifteen. Yeah. So I have to remind myself of that, especially when I read Thou shalt not covet my mind automatically makes this capital L law of Moses every time, but then that would so if that's the case, then you're definitely talking about a Pharisee here. Yeah. Um, but but if it's it could law be law in general for it, the it could Gentiles. Open up a lot of other possibilities. You know, I think you could almost read it. I mean, read it through the eyes of a Gentile. Read it through the eyes of the Jew. One applies to the law of Moses, and the other would apply to moral yeah, law. Whoever, Whatever they both fit, what the law is, it's hard to nail it down to one or the other because they both fit. I think that's the problem. Uh, But verse twenty-four is where I was. What I'm trying to use to tie it all together. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So who will free me from this body of death? We again have the theme of freedom, being freed from the law. So we're talking about in chapter seven. So in verse twenty-four, he's talking about being freed from the body of death. And that goes right into chapter 8. But it's just a little statement at the end of 25. I served the law of God with my mind. So I'm guessing there we're talking about really with our spirit, our inner person. Okay, when he says that, is he thinking about circumcision, how to build a tabernacle, Levitical priesthood, the Passover feast, the Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, the... Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, yeah. don't covet, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lust, don't hate? You know, I think... What What is he talking okay, about? Okay, here's some evidence for that or viewpoint. Both. 
here's some really good evidence for that viewpoint. He says in verse 14, we know the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh order sin. So he does make the point that the law is spiritual. Yes. Not fleshly. I yeah. mean, it does have commands. Like you said, it does have festivals. It does have physical things you have to do, uh, the temple, the priesthood, all those things. But there's but there's obviously, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, there's a spiritual side of the law, and that's when Jesus came and fulfilled, you know, and he taught them. Okay, hey, you're, you know, you're saying you're, spiritual would be like moral as opposed to the ceremonial aspects of the law. Yeah, I'm thinking of what's behind the ceremonial aspect. And that, I mean, I don't know if that's right or wrong to interpret that this way here. Are you saying but, spiritual includes the ceremonial rituals or excludes it? I'm trying to say it in the same way, I guess, that, you know, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, yeah, don't yeah. even be angry. So murdering is still wrong right. in the New Covenant. But That's now part of the law. he's trying to show you, look, it's not just about murdering somebody. What's the mindset, you know, I guess, what's the spirit behind it? Anger, you know, malice or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm really making any sense, but I think it does, it does give some uh, evidence to the point of, you know, we're talking about moral law here, or we can be talking about moral law, not necessarily, you know, from mm-hmm. the point of the Gentiles, moral mm-hmm. law, the law of spiritual. Yeah. Uh, but also, we could be talking about the law of Moses, which is kind of referred Depending to Depending on where as, you're coming from. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's where we're going to have to leave that. Now, I, I do want to answer my third question, because it's the most interesting of all of them to me. Yeah. Who is this man? Is it Paul, before he became a Christian... Or Paul after he became a Christian. In other words, as a Christian, can I read this and relate to this? Or is he making a point about is he making a point to those Jews who want to demand perfection according to the law that they can't do that? So the the identification of this man determines the argument that he's making here. Now, here's why there there's on both sides of this, there's some compelling evidence. Why would anybody claim that he's talking about a state that he was in before he became a Christian when he was a Pharisee and everything? Well, because in chapter 6, verse 6, he said that, you know, you mentioned the crucifixion yeah. uh, theme. Uh, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to another so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And in 8, 2... He says, uh, you're, you're set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Yeah. But in this man's struggle, we read him say in chapter 7, verse 15. Um, no, verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14. I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, that's a difficult verse. Yeah. For those who want to make this a Christian. Because twice Paul says you're set free from sin and you are no longer a slave to sin. And this man is saying, I'm sold under sin. Now some people would end the, the debate right there and say, it's Paul is talking about a guy that's trying to justify himself by the law. And he's showing him how impossible that is. He's not talking about himself in the present time as a Christian. He may be talking about himself as a Pharisee. But here's the problem. The problem is that um, 
Well, there's a number of things. This language can only be taken so far. I noticed in chapter 6, verse 19, Paul saying this, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Yeah. And that's in the context of this slavery language. So that tells me he's using that rather loosely in human terms, not technically. And he may be making a different point in chapter 6 and in chapter 8, verse 2, for that matter, than he's making in chapter 7, verse 14, when he says he's sold under sin. And he doesn't use the exact same words, although we have to admit the imagery there of slavery is present in all those passages. But also, he's using this first-person pronoun over and over and over again. Yeah. And why would he be so cryptic? Why wouldn't he say, the man under the law is going through this struggle? When I was under the law, I went through this struggle. Even as a Pharisee, or you know, you who want to, wants to justify yourself by the law, you have this struggle. He's not saying that. He said, I... We know that the law is spiritual. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. I don't know if the personal pronoun is used anywhere else in the Bible as much as it is used here. Yeah. That's one thing. Another thing is, this sounds like a Christian. It doesn't sound like a Pharisee. It doesn't sound like somebody who thinks he's justified by the law. Does a Pharisee say... um, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Yeah. He does? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm saying, I, yeah, know, I agree with your point. Does, you know, the guy in Luke chapter 18 is saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I don't think you a know, Pharisee would this, say... I do that. The Pharisee's boasting all of the I time. I definitely don't think they would say, verse 18, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Right. I think they would say, I have the desire and the ability, and I have done it. Look what I have done. This sounds like a Christian who believes in the gospel, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we're saved by grace, just, you know, not by our own works. The impossible standard of being sinless. You know, yeah. I think that's kind of what he's, he's working at. Can I ask? Well, I, I'll let you finish. i got a couple questions. All right, well, the only other thing I was going to say is, this does not sound like... We have a clear description of this person before Christ, Paul before Christ, in Philippians 3, yeah. 6 and following, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Um, he says uh, before that, if anyone has a reason for confidence in the flesh, Same I word. have more. Yeah. Same it's word. interesting to note that flesh, I think it's, it's a Greek... Uh, Sarks or sarcos, yeah. Yeah. like the fleshly body, and sarcos so the, here's like another the adjective, right? Fleshly, yeah. Uh, sarks, I guess, is the noun yeah, for I it. I think that's the one. Uh, um, now there's something interesting. Verse 23 says, "I see in my members another law waging war." Members is another like physical term for your body. So I right. see in the in my body parts is another yeah. good way to translate that with members. So we're talking about flesh body. And then, like you said, he mentions you know all the reasons he has to have confidence in the flesh. And I know we don't want to use this whole section. I need to check our time here. We don't want to use this whole section for this one problem. But here's where I fall on it. After years and years of going back and forth, 
I've, I got to say right now where I am in my life, in my studies, I think he's talking about a Christian struggle. Yeah. And, you know, you were describing in terms of an inner struggle. We all know what it's like to know what the right thing to do is and to feel the temptation to do the opposite. Yeah. And uh, maybe Definitely. this is a Christian in a weak point in his life. But Paul is pointing out, and remember his main point is that we do not nullify the law by faith. And so he's showing that as a Christian, he does believe the law is righteous and holy and good. But he cannot be justified by it because he sins occasionally. Or maybe all the time. Yeah. Depending on, you know, what... You know, maybe he's not murdering people all the time and committing adultery all the time, but maybe he's not loving as much as he should, and maybe he's hating too much. Yeah. And so that, you know, his mind knows that it's wrong for him to covet. That's the exam- the one example he gives of sin. Yeah. Now, that's one that we have to admit we struggle with, all of us, and it's not one of the big major sins. You know, we classify them. Paul's yeah. talking about coveting here. Now, how many of us struggle with jealousy and envy and coveting? We I all mean, do. especially for, and you put that in his context of coming out of being a Pharisee. Yeah. I mean, I'm, Pharisees, you know, the guys that are striving to be the smartest and the most righteous, I can definitely see them being jealous of the guy that's next up on the ladder. You know? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, let me ask everybody my question in the world quick. agrees. That, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. All right. I want to ask mine. And then again, this is one I don't have an answer for. I just want to ask. Okay. 17. Yeah, just we'll just stick with verse 17 here. Now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Yeah, and we'll do 18 too. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So what is this? So I've got to teach this tomorrow night. And I'm yeah. going to need some good way I'm going to need some way to explain the verse 17 probably. It's not I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What ex- are we talking about? Like, you know, it's no, it's the sinful part of my flesh that is doing this, but it's not the real me because the real me is seeking to be spiritual. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, it's not the real him. I, th- I th- because it's a side of him, 19, but that's not the real him. You got three parts here. There, I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Uh, so what I'm reading here is the flesh, the spirit, and then the heart or the control center or the will. Yeah. That's bouncing between these two. He's got control, so he feels temptation, and that's the sin dwelling in his flesh. That's temptation. That's what that is. Okay, so kind of when he commits... When he commits a sin, now, like the part of him, okay, I'm I'm getting this, but I'm it's trying to think of a good a, way to word guy, it. There's a there's a guy running the controls up there. Yeah, he's trying to make decisions, and he's got he's pulled in two directions that are a part of this machine that he's in. Is it like an un- so? It's like there's temptation. Yeah, on one side pulling him over here. It sounds like Inside Out. The yeah. Film. Let's not go there. And then, and then there's the conscience. Let's call that other side. It's not the conscience, but just for the yeah. sake of illustration, the conscience is over here saying, "I want to do good," and the flesh is over here saying, "No, I want to do bad." 
Yeah. And, it, you know, to, to do a caricature of it, it's the good angel and the bad and the devil. The angel yeah. on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. Yeah. And you got a head in between them two. Yeah. The yeah, two. I think it's... So, I don't know if... That's the way I look at it. The sin's dwelling in him. Yeah, that makes in sense. In the sense that he's being tempted. And when he commits it, he's like, that's not me. You know, that's not the real me. He feels kind of immediately sort of. feels bad about what he's doing. That satisfies. But I can I can use that for class tomorrow night. That's good yeah. stuff. I might just play this podcast. All right, just sit down. Just, just give hit give, play. And sit yeah, down. give people. We're going on right. so long though that you'd have to. Okay, let me. Let's fly through this. We'll try it's to. It's impossible to fly through this. There's another big point in chapter eight that we've brought up in chapter seven in verse six. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What is that Spirit? Most translations have that with a capital S. Some will lowercase it. It should probably be capital, considering the context that it comes in with chapter 8. Now, in chapter 8, we've already said the law of the Spirit has set us free. Uh, We get down to verse... Let's see here. uh, Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. And then in verse 11, as we mentioned, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So I guess we'll we'll just kind of go through the Holy Spirit's um, indwelling and action just as we see it here in Romans. When we're baptized, we know we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, Acts 2.38, Acts 5.32, Galatians 4.6 talks about being given the Spirit. And also those passages we just read here in Romans. Other passages like 1 Corinthians 3.16 say the Spirit of God dwells in us. So we know the Spirit of God dwells within us. I don't think that's up for debate. What's up for debate is, okay, well, what does that mean? I think How does he dwell in us? Yeah, I think a lot of people associate... Um, some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as we see in the early church with that. And so when they hear that we give, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit, it kind of raises some red flags. Because we're thinking about, well, when you say you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, are you saying you're going to raise folks from the dead? Are you saying you're going to um, you know, heal somebody right there on the spot? Uh, what is its role in our life? And so there's one extreme that says it is, you know, he, God himself, through the Holy Spirit, verbally speaks to you and gives you the power to heal people like he did uh, in the early church with the apostles. And there's another extreme that says the Holy Spirit is only confined to the Word of God. And there's nothing outside of that. And uh, I think there's a balance somewhere in the middle of those two, for sure. Uh, we know that it's not confined to the Word, for a few things. Number he, one... He is not confined. Yeah, right, right. We know he's not confined to the Word because, number one, the Spirit is received at baptism from the passages we already mentioned a moment ago, Acts 2.38, 5.32. Now, the Bible is not received at baptism. The Bible is something that you can you can have access to well before baptism, that you can memorize and have in your heart before baptism. Uh, or, or know it and never be... You know, never be baptized. Right. You know, Acts 2.41 says, They who gladly received the word. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, were baptized. 
Mm-hmm. And there and number three, there were added to their number about three thousand souls. Yeah. So first they received the word. If the Spirit is the Word, if He dwells in us through the Word only, mm-hmm. then He would have been dwelling in them before their baptism. Right. In Acts two two forty one. Right. Yeah. So that that's that's, that's a problem with that position. Yeah. And then here's here's another one real quick from Romans eight. Uh, the Spirit intercedes for us. Romans eight verses twenty six and twenty seven. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray, or we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He searches the hearts. Uh, he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we know that the Spirit has some kind of action even in prayer, uh, knowing how to uh, what does it say exactly here? Intercedes us with groanings too deep for words. Um, we'll have more on that and apply. So what is the Spirit? How does it work? Well, there's a couple things there. How does there. he work? Yeah, what, how does he work? I need to change. I'm trying to get your... I need to change these out in, the, in my notes because I'm thinking of the, the Spirit. Right as a, with you, boy. Yeah, I'll figure it out one of these days. I'm trying to make myself relatable human. <laughs> right. Yeah, with these pronouns. You're doing a good job. Um, <laughs> many believe... <laughs> thank you, I guess. Many believe that the Holy Spirit is a sensation. You know, when you when you receive the Holy Spirit, it's a sensation that's better felt than told. But in reality, you know, Acts two thirty eight says you'll have the forgiveness of sins, and I think we we know we have the Holy Spirit in the same vein that we know we have forgiveness of sins by faith. Yeah, we take it by faith uh, from the Word of God. And I think that's you know the same thing. Now, when we receive the Holy Spirit and when we receive forgiveness of sins and baptism, it should make us feel great. You know, we should have probably a feeling like we've never felt before in our lives. But that feeling is the result, not the evidence for what you've got. If that makes any sense. Yeah. The let's, feeling of joy is the result way, of salvation. Just so everybody knows what we're saying here. The indwelling of the Spirit is not something that you can feel. Right. Just and like you later can't on, feel your forgiveness of sins. Exactly. That's a good parallel. In verse 14 of chapter 8, he says, We're led by the Spirit. The Spirit does not lead through intuition, uh, inner still small voice, whisperings, nudges, feelings, impulses. That's not the way the Spirit leads. The Spirit does all of His guidance and His leading through the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians six seventeen. But He dwells in us nonetheless. Yeah. And just because He He leads us through the Word, that doesn't mean that we have to say that He dwells in us only insofar as His Word is in us. Yeah. Like how many verses do you have memorized? Well, that's how much Holy Spirit you have in you. Right. It just yeah. doesn't add up. God And God tells us through His Word that the Spirit, uh, you know, helps us in our prayer life and that He, you know, maybe, and I say maybe because I don't know exactly how this works, but being in, dwelling in us, He knows our hearts, and when we don't know what to pray for, He knows what we need and He intercedes for us. Verse 11, I think, is another important part of the indwelling of the Spirit. Uh, he raised... The Spirit somehow was the agent in the resurrection of Christ. If He's dwelling in us, He'll also be the agent in our own resurrection. 
Um, you have the sealing and the down payment of Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians yeah. 1. Yeah. Also, but no impulses, no nudges. Now, some will object to this and say, well, you say Jesus dwells in you, and you don't take that literally or personally. And you say God dwells in you, but you don't take that personally or literally. Mm-hmm. And uh, to that, I would point out Romans 8, 9, and 10, which shows that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ is the same thing as the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is called those those things, which shows that God and Christ dwell in us through the Holy Spirit, who actually dwells in us. Yeah. It's a mystery. Yeah. We don't know how it works. We only take it by faith. If we did not have this Bible and this particular chapter and some others like 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and, and many, many other passages, if if we didn't have yeah. that, and you mentioned Acts 2.38, and I think of Acts 5 or something, um, if we didn't have those, there's no way that we would know this. Right. Just as if we didn't have passages that tell us about the human spirit, we wouldn't know that we have a human spirit. Yeah. How do I know that I have a soul, an immortal soul? Not because I feel it, not because you know science has discovered it, but because my Bible tells me I have an immortal soul. Yeah. That's the same with the Holy Spirit. We take it on faith. It's just by faith. Yeah. And so I'm not a Calvinist. I, you know, I'm not. I don't believe in the operation of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in um, you know some miraculous indwelling that mm-hmm. manifests itself in tongue speaking and all of that. But I do believe that right. if you take the Bible at face value, the best approach is just to say, He dwells in me, period. Well, well how does He dwell in me? Well, I don't exactly understand that. Well, I think, I mean, you're saying exactly what Paul has said. I mean, Paul said, He dwells in you. I mean, in period. all those different places. He doesn't say, you know, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? And He dwells in you by these you know, the words that I am writing? Yeah. He dwells in you by these words or by a miracle of healing or by an impulse or by, you know, whatever. Yeah. He doesn't tell you. He just says he dwells in you. Does it do that? I have a lot of respect for our brethren who believe the word position, you know, that the Spirit dwells in you through the word only. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that the Spirit uses the word in many important things like well, sanctification, the- conversion, uh, and daily living and, and being led by the Spirit and all the of that. The sword, the Word is being the sword of the Spirit. I think you mentioned that a moment ago. Yeah. I mean, that's a great imagery when you keep it in mind. You know, it's something, the Spirit definitely uses it. And it's it's a, a vital part of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, but there's, you know, there's something else also if that makes sense. And I'm not talking about healing or... Uh, yeah, we're constantly having to throw out disclaimers here. Because yeah, I'm not talking about so healing or... judge um, whenever you start talking about the Holy Spirit. Or, you Spirit. know, like speaking to you or whatever. I'm talking about things like here in Romans 8 where the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groaning is too deep for words. The, the things that you mentioned where, uh, you know, give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. Mm-hmm. I think there's some of those kind of aspects... That you know maybe um, we lose focus on or something like that. But there's it's, there are a lot of arguments that people make like you're dividing up God. Yeah. Um, you you're they'll they'll charge people with you know saying they can feel the spirit, and they'll make other arguments. Um, 
you don't believe Christ actually dwells in you or God actually dwells in you. And there's certainly a lot more to be discussed than what we what we have time to do here. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're well over our time. But I just believe in taking the word by faith and saying it the way Paul says it in the absence of any further information. I agree so with that. When it comes to this, 100%. I, you know, get comfortable with ambiguity and mystery because God doesn't want us to know everything. We can't. We know what we need to know in order to be saved and to follow His will. No. And the things that He has left out, like exactly how the Spirit dwells in us, is way above our pay grade. I don't think we could understand it. We, could, we couldn't understand. I mean, that. you mentioned a moment ago, Paul said, "I'm you know, speaking in human terms, pretty much." Yeah, because of he says. Uh, because of your human because limitation. of your natural limitations, and that's what he's doing in chapter eight, verses nine and following. I think so, and it's—I mean—it's really tough. If you've got more questions on the Holy Spirit, or if you want us to um, maybe expound a little bit on you know what we believe Scripture teaches about the Holy Spirit, uh, send us a comment or something, and we'll be yeah. happy to write back to you. Send us an email. We'll write back to you so we can, you know, if you have any any questions or doubts on what we think about that, we'd be happy to clear that up for you. Right, right. Let's uh, let's pause for a little bit, and uh, when we come back, we're going to make this practical and give you a few lessons from Romans chapter six through eight. Okay, so we're back to apply some of the things about Romans 6 through 8. And the first thing, you might notice we didn't mention anything about it in the think section. Baptism in chapter 6. And if you're confused about baptism, what it is, what the results are supposed to be, this is a great passage to read. Uh, it explains a lot about baptism. And it's a great passage to read with somebody that's thinking about being baptized. Because it lets them know what they're getting into. It lets them know that this is a lifelong commitment and it's a change. It's a real change um, rather than just something you do to say, okay, now I'm saved. You know, it's not just a ceremonial act. Um, look at in verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And he's talking there, verse 3, Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So a heavy, heavy illustration here on being baptized into the death of Christ, the old self dies just as Christ himself died on the cross. Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. Well, no, you haven't, Paul. You know, he has not been nailed to a cross like Christ was. He had not been in a tomb for three days, and he had not risen again out of that tomb. But what had Paul done? Well, Paul had put his old self to death. You know, as we read there in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. He's talking about putting that old self 
to death. In the same words of Galatians 2.20, it's now Christ that lives in him, putting that old self to death to have a newness of life, a life that is modeled after Christ, a life that is alive to God through Christ and dead to sin. So I think when you're thinking about baptism, when you're considering becoming baptized, or if you've got someone you're studying with, Romans 6 is a, is a great place to go at least to get this idea that baptism is really a death to to self, a death to the sinful self, and a life to God in Christ. And Drew, you've got a lot of other applications here on baptism, well, right? Yeah, well, I mean, when you read this, there's no way that you can apply it other than saying baptism is essential for salvation because you haven't died to your sin yet. You can't say that you have. You haven't died to your sin yet because baptism, the burial, is your death to sin. Yeah. And you haven't risen to newness of life. In other words, you haven't been saved until after you come out of the waters of baptism. You've got to be buried before you can be raised. Yes. And God says, he doesn't say you do this to earn salvation. This is not a works-based salvation. This is submitting by faith to a system that God has planned that doesn't make any sense from a human vantage point. But in baptism as a proclamation of the gospel, you submit to this and allow someone else to lower you into these waters and raise you up out of these waters with faith in your heart that at that moment that you're buried and raised again, you are saved according to the gospel, depending on the blood of Jesus as your sacrifice right, and on his resurrection as the down payment on your on your resurrection to come. Yeah, and it's not a another thing we can get here about baptism is it's not it's not a if you're baptized then you're you're good, you know, like you're no matter what happens after that, you've got access into this grace. Uh Paul talks about some people in Galatians 2 that have been severed from Christ that have fallen from Galatians grace. 5. Or Galatians 5, yeah, sorry. Um and you can see that in what Paul says here in Romans 6. He says in verse 15, What then? Should we keep on sinning because we're no longer under law but under grace? By no means. So now that we've been baptized, if we have a newness of life after we've been buried, then why can't we just do whatever we want? Paul says, Well, do you not know that if you present yourself to someone as a slave, you are slaves of the one you obey, either sin or of obedience? So what he's saying there is, Look, if you really have given your life to God, you're going to serve God. You're not going to serve that law of sin. You're not going to serve sin. You are now going to try and serve God. You're going to try and be righteous. So baptism is meant to lead us into well, what it is. It's you know, it's the um, it's the moment in which we commit to that lifestyle of repentance. You know, mm-hmm. where we've seen Paul say earlier, "Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance?" Uh, baptism, the grace that we receive is meant to lead us into repentance, into a lifestyle of serving God, not into a lifestyle of, well, I've been baptized, now I can you know, I can just do whatever I want because I did that work. I checked that off of the list, and now that it's checked off the list, I'm fine. You know, it's something much it's a lifelong commitment to obeying God. Yeah. Uh okay, well that that actually leads into the next point I wanted to make from Chapter 6, verse 17, which is that under Christ, you still have a standard of teaching to follow. 
And this is very important in the context of what we've been talking about in chapter 7. You're released from the law, verse 6. You know, we're delivered from the law, uh, freed from the law, died to the law. So somebody might make the mistake of concluding that there is no law to follow under Christ. And that's not at all the point that Paul is trying to make. He uses this phrase, standard of teaching. And the word standard is translated from tupos, sometimes form, sometimes pattern. But the idea is that there is a mold into which you are to pour your life. That's the imagery of that word. And uh, that's the laws of the New Testament. The New Testament has a lot of you know, laws about you know, morality and attitudes and you know, the plan of salvation and how we're to treat others and in relationships how we're to live. And all of that is still important. And you can be, you mentioned it is possible for a Christian to fall away. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Through not following the law of Christ or the standard of teaching. You become a slave of that. And yeah. you obey it from the heart. You don't just do it because you have to, but you do it because you want to out of gratitude for the grace of God. Right. Now let's go to number three. And this is just something we've already said, but I can't, I can't just leave it out because it's such a big point. And that simply is, and this is from like the entire chapter 7, because of our sin, the law cannot help us. Whether you want to look at that as the law of Moses or the law in general, but because of sin, the law cannot help you because the only way the law can help you is by your following it perfectly. Leviticus 18.5 if you don't follow it perfectly, if you sin one, if you commit one sin, James says, James 2.10, then you're accountable for the whole law. So because of sin, the law cannot help you. The lesson is not that because the law is flawed, the law cannot help you, or because the law is evil, the law cannot help you. It's because of your sin, you're at fault, God's law cannot help you. And because of your sin, Jesus, who kept the law perfectly, had to die for you, and his righteousness is credited as your righteousness through faith. All right? Now, here's the next one. Chapter 8. We're going to skip over to chapter 8. Verses 15 through 17. We've been adopted by God. Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, or by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Um, I'm, a, I'm an adoptive parent. Both my children are adopted. And, you know, I don't have biological children to compare them to, but I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't make a difference between my biological children and my adopted children if I had biological children. I just don't see how I could. I don't see how I could love or care for my adopted children any more than I do. To me, they're just my kids. You know, there's no there's no difference. And if I have any money when I die, and I probably won't, uh, they will inherit it. Even though they're adopted. And uh, that means something very important here. We in terms of inheritance, are on the same level with Christ, the Son of God. Exactly. Because he's called our joint heir. Or, um, 
heirs with him. Fellow heir. Yeah, fellow heirs. I'm thinking of the old King James joint heir. Mm -hmm. But we're fellow heirs with Christ. One time a a man led prayer, and he said um, something about our brother, our our big brother or our brother Jesus Christ. And um, an older man came up to me, and he was really angry about him saying that. He said, where in the Bible does it say that Christ is our brother? And I was like, well, Hebrews 2 and Romans 8, 15 through 17. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 2 says he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And then yeah. here, you know, he's our brother He because we're adopted. You know, that's that's the idea here. And it's a beautiful idea, and it's hard to believe that we could be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ as our brother. Uh, right. But that, that's, that's what it's teaching. Um, ready for the next one? Yes. Moving fast, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 18, another lesson here is that a glorious future awaits the believers, even believers who suffer, you know, and there's a lot about suffering here that we have not had time to talk about. But in chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glories, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he mentions um, in verse 23, adoption in a different way, our, because we're waiting for this adoption, uh, the he describes it in terms of the redemption of our bodies. So that's a reference to the resurrection of the body. Uh, the Bible teaches that heaven is not some spiritual, airy, cloudy place for disembodied spirits, but a home to be inhabited by resurrected bodies. Now, those bodies are not physical bodies with the physical limitations that we have. Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 15, spiritual bodies. But they're bodies, which brings comfort to a lot of people who are afraid of a ghostly afterlife. You know, he's not talking about ghosts. I don't. I can't tell you exactly what he's talking about. No. Glorified bodies, spiritual bodies, but redemption of our bodies. The kind of body he talks about in 1 Corinthians, right? Right, that kind of body, but it, they're also our bodies. Two words bring that out. Resurrection. I mean, if we're just going to be replaced by a totally different body that doesn't look anything like us at all, then I wouldn't call that a resurrection. I'd call that a replacement. And then also the word redemption means to buy back. Mm-hmm. So whatever body died, that's going to be purchased back, recycled it's more than recycling. That's a bad illustration. Yeah, but Paul, it's redeemed in the sense that that body is going to be glorified and made new and indestructible and imperishable. Yeah, I like how Paul kind of in that same line he says, "What is sown perishable is reaped imperishable." Yeah, uh, he kind of talks. He compares, you know, the resurrection. But I know we're getting off topic here. No, we're not off topic. That's but exactly what we're talking about. He compares That's a glorious future. He yeah. compares the resurrection body to uh, wheat or grain, right? You know, like the little wheat or grain, and it's sown and planted, and it grows into a plant. And he's got, you know, he so uses the that same, same material, imagery. but the plant is a far different thing than the seed that dies. Right. Right. Yeah, and he uses he says there's a heavenly body and an earthly body. The glory of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. So 
But they're bodies. Yeah, but they're bodies. So it's a natural body, verse 44, 1 Corinthians 15. It is sown natural. It's raised spiritual. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it's there's still the, you know, I guess the body that goes in the grave is going to be given this future glory. You know, it's going to be reaped. It's going to be sown perishable, but it's going to be reaped imperishable. It's going to mm-hmm. come back, and it's going to be made something uh, very different. Really interesting study there. Drew, you've yeah. got a book on that. I'll give you your plugs. I know you won't plug yourself. Okay. Uh, Christian Hope. Really good. It's got, is it a, it's an appendix, or is it just the whole chapter? On, on the resurrection? Yeah. That's 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 the that's a chapter the, in the book. That's the chapter. Yeah, the, the, the appendix is... It's on times. New Heaven and Earth. Uh, yeah, yeah, New Heaven and Earth. So there's a, is, there, are, there are a lot of chapters in the book on the resurrection. And yeah, it's a, a good... we have time to say here. Yeah, it's it's a good place to go for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, also, I think right after that, our next one is the spiritual in prayer, right? Right, That's yeah, we want to talk about prayer just for a second. I This is really encouraging to me, verses 26 and 27, where it says, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Uh, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, it's very encouraging to me because I think we all have been in the place where we don't really know what to pray for. Um, maybe in the sense of, you know, well, I just don't know what to pray for. But also in the sense of maybe you have lost somebody. Or maybe something really bad has happened, or maybe something really good has happened, and you want to pray about that, but you don't really know what to say about it. You know, you have what, and what gets me to that point is where he says the spirit intercedes with groanings that are too deep for words. So I think there are times when we feel things that are too deep for us to put into words. You know, we don't know how to how to communicate that. To convey the fullest, uh, you know, the fullness of the feeling that we have, you know, I think. But those are your is, groanings, yeah. And this is uh, the spirit's groanings, right? Well, the, the means, spirit can give those groanings. Here is what is what I'm looking for. The spirit can intercede with those groanings that are too deep for words. Yeah, he but, can communicate those. He can intercede to communicate those groanings that are too deep. Yeah, I disagree with that okay. interpretation because I believe that the groanings there are the spirit's groanings, and the literal rendering of "too deep for words" is unutterable words, mm-hmm. which is almost like an oxymoron. Words that can't be said. Yeah. So don't listen for them. You're not going to hear them. They're not going to be written in a book because they're not expressible. But there's communication in heaven over your needs. But Paul says, I can't, you know, those things can't be put into words. You'll never know what that com- communication is. Yeah. But you can know that it's going on. Well, I, th- I mean, that's I th- the way I take it. Now, there is, yeah. I, there is our inability to communicate in there, too. Yeah. And that we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And maybe there's some parallelism going on here because uh, that just came naturally to Hebrews like Paul. You know, yeah. they, would, they would give parallels. And if that's the case, then in the first line, we don't know how to say what we want to say. Yeah, that's... And in the second line, the Spirit communicates in things that can't be said. I don't, I don't know. But yeah, that's, that's kind of how I take it is. We don't know 
you know, there are times when we don't know how to pray like we should, but the Spirit can intercede for us when we don't know how to pray yes. like we should. That's that's the point there. And then times when we don't know how to pray like we should, where I don't think we're necessarily talking about, okay, we'll say a prayer. Well, I don't know what to pray about. You know, should I be thankful? Should I be, should I glorify God? Should I, you know, this or that or the other? I don't think that's necessarily what we're talking about. Just saying, like, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know what, to, you know, like, who should I pray for? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a, all you have to do is just close your eyes and start thinking, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to do this for me. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, or not even pray at all because the Spirit's got you covered. Yeah. That's I, not it. That, that's not it. Yeah. I think, you know, you got to ask, the weakness, How when do we not know how to pray as we ought? You know, how do we not know how to pray as we ought? The Spirit makes up for that weakness. Yeah, and I agree, I agree with that. The reason I believe it's important to connect the groaning to the Spirit is because exegetically that's where it is. But also, that's an echo of the groaning that you read about that we wanted to talk about. We just didn't have time. Right, yeah. But you have the groaning indicating suffering on behalf of the creation in chapter 8, and then also on behalf of the uh, children of God, the first, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. And then, look, lo and behold, the Spirit's groaning too. Yeah. Which means as we suffer and we don't know what to say to God in that suffering, the Spirit is suffering with us. He is touched by that. And as yeah. we groan, He groans but we can't hear it. But yeah. don't be dismayed that you don't hear God talking to you outside of His Word. Don't be dismayed that you don't feel the Spirit's presence. It's there. Believe it by faith because God told you it's there. Yeah. Uh, and I, so there's an echo there, I think, is why we need yeah. to keep the groaning on the Spirit. Yeah, and I think that's still... I think that kind of... I don't know, maybe even explains kind of what I was trying to say earlier. I think that groaning does go... I think you're right. The groaning does go there. But I'm... Uh, and I think you have corrected... You probably... You know, my thinking now I think is a little more uh, specific and accurate. But it's... You know, I think it stands to reason that if... You know, in a prayer there's... Uh, you know, almost like when you're talking to someone else and you have this really... Uh, I don't know, maybe a deep feeling and you can't explain it. Well, it's comforting. It's comforting to me to know that in prayer, the Spirit is doing is groaning for me. I guess in the way that you just explained, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the Spirit is giving groanings too deep for words uh, to God, interceding for me. So I don't necessarily have to find the perfect words and have a prayer, you know, like David has, where it just looks like he's pouring himself out perfectly. Yeah, perfect poetry. Yeah. So I guess that's an encouragement to me. Uh, that's yeah, it is. Really it stuff. is a real encouragement um, to keep praying. Yeah, and not worry about the flaws of your prayer. Yeah. Um, let's let's do verse twenty-eight. This is on the providence of God. We know that for those who love God, there's a qualification there. You got to love God. All things work together for good. Another qualification for those who are called according to His purpose. So. First of all, this is these are this is a promise specifically for people who love God and who are called. In other words, called by the gospel and respond to the gospel. And the promise is that God will work not just good things, 
but all things together for good. Remember, yeah. the context of this part of chapter 8 is affliction, groaning, suffering of this present time. God can take that suffering, He can take your triumphs as well, and He can work it all together for good. Now, can, do we, I don't know if we have... Oh, we, we don't have any time, time, but... Uh, but I do think we kind of want to qualify this, too. It works out together for good. Well, what is that good? I think a lot of people yeah, a lot of people exactly. can lose their faith over, well, all things are going to work out together for good. Take this, for example. you Somebody is, um, I don't know, maybe uh, they get in a car wreck and they're seriously injured. And so you pray, you know, we pray for this guy to be healed after his car wreck. And you know this passage, like all things work out together for good. And a lot of people take this, well, this is going to make um, you know, our faith stronger, and that's why he got in this wreck, and he's going to be healed, he's going to be fine. Because all things work out together for good. And it's good for him to stay alive after this wreck. You know, and it, obviously this is just a, an example. Yeah. Um, but then let's say, you know, the guy heals, he gets better, and then we all say, oh yeah, all things work out together for good. What happens when the guy doesn't make it through? You know, you have people going, well, I thought all things worked out together for good for those who believe, and he believed, and he got in a wreck and he died. So all things didn't work out together for good. But the for good here is something that's a lot greater than just our, you know, health. It's God's our, good. Yeah, it's God's good, which is specifically attached here to that future glory. Right. So I and think... God's good is best for us. Right. It's not what we want many times. Yeah. But it is best for us. Well, Paul even, uh, uh, I guess when we talk about the good, what is the greatest thing that we could have? It's the salvation that we have in Christ. And, you know, that that's fully realized on the day of judgment, you know, to its to its completion, fully realized. That's, that's the greatest thing, and that's where God's trying to get us. So when we say all things work out together for good, we're not saying you're going to get the promotion at your job, you're going to get a raise, you're going to get... You know, a nice house, a nice car, nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. That's not the interpretation. I don't think that's the correct interpretation of all things work out together for good because bad things happen to good people every single day. Mm-hmm. And does that make the Word of God here null? No, certainly not. No. We just have to be careful it's of our definition. Promising of to good. give meaning to your suffering and purpose to your life. And it's God's purpose, it's not our purpose. And, right. Uh, you know, we apologize in this episode for not covering all the challenging parts, the hard sayings. We tried. And the great applications. But, you know, we only had an hour and we took an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> so yeah. we just we just have to we break it We went over and we still didn't get it all in. Oh, yeah, we never There's three chapters. Yeah. Three very dense chapters. Three, yeah, we did three chapters. And, you know, we say at the beginning of the podcast where we survey the books of the Bible. And I think we go a little deeper than survey. Um, but there's 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 something that we're trying to do here at the 66 that's somewhere between a verse-by-verse explanation and a quick fly-by survey of the, of the Bible. And we're not even sure exactly where that line is, but we... It's right here. Yeah, we just did it. We're on the line right now. Yeah. But we're glad you listened to us today. Uh, if you got a comment to make, you can find us on Twitter at The66Podcast. 66 is a number. We're on Facebook also. Just search The66Podcast. And you can find us on the internet at The66.net. Again, 66 is a number. Um, leave us a comment. Send us a tweet. 
Um, leave us a comment on Facebook. We'll get back to you. Any questions or anything that we skip that you'd like for us to cover, we'd be happy to do that. And we'll be back next week with another episode on Romans. Thank you.